You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is Daniel Hurwitz here on the Westwood One Podcast Network at CRTV here in Conservative Review's Northern Command Headquarters. And indeed, we will be continuing to speak the truth, common sense, broadly on the issues until and unless a federal district judge tells us we can no longer do so. And let me tell you, we're rapidly approaching that time. You know, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. I really do. Where there are civilization-crushing assaults on the foundations of our republic, our system of governance, our sovereignty, our security. What does it mean to be a democratic republic? The problems with the courts, with immigration, with health care. And we have an entire so-called conservative movement, and there's almost no focus on this. And often we have a conservative movement to tell us, don't worry, it's not really as much of a problem as you think it is. And in fact, we're actually making progress. And as I always tell you, the worst thing you could do is deny the severity of the problem because that obfuscates the true solution. What is going on in the courts is unimaginable. The reaction to what's going on in the courts, or the lack thereof, is even more stupefying. As you guys know, I wrote a book, Stolen Sovereignty, about, oh gosh, we're coming up on two years, I guess, in the summer, but it was the summer of 2016. And, you know, we were looking towards a new election, and I was warning people that, look, you know, you might have a good election, win the White House, House, Senate, state legislatures. Name me the top 10 things you want to do, and I'll tell you, A, the Republicans will likely not do it, but even if they do, the courts are now going to mandate the third term of Barack Obama. The courts are going to say that the platform of the Democrat Party is mandated by law and the constitutional, and the Constitution. I warned in particular about stolen sovereignty about the nexus of immigration and the judiciary, that the final frontier of judicial tyranny will be traversed, that the courts will venture into the one area where they, no matter what, no matter what they were doing during the bowels of the Warren era over the last half century, they never ventured into immigration. They will now say we no longer are our own sovereign nation, and the political branches cannot determine who we let in, who we deport, and they have constitutional rights, and there's nothing you can do about it. So I wrote an article earlier this week on seven radical court decisions in just one week, how the courts are accomplishing in a matter of a few days for the left, illegally, more than the GOP Congress has accomplished for Republicans, for people on the right, and I know those two are not synonymous, since they took over in 1995. You know, with four years out of power from 07 to 2011, but, you know, they basically had control of the House for the past two decades. Nothing we talk about matters if we don't end this notion of judicial supremacy. 
that the courts could do anything, that even a lower court could do anything, and it's the law of the land. No matter how lawless they are. It just doesn't matter. So I wrote this article about seven cases dealing with immigration, abortion, funding Planned Parenthood, sanctuary cities, environmental regulations. And and the common thread is that Trump has to continue every Obama policy. And then since then, there's been three other cases since I you know, wrote that. It's like every five minutes, the courts do something. I mean, and I'm talking about big things. Like we have this decades-long battle over funding Planned Parenthood. I got news for you. It's meaningless because the courts are now saying that you must fund them. So even if you muster enough votes in a legislature on a state level, in Congress on a federal level, to finally do the right thing, which is hard enough given how bad the Republicans are, it doesn't matter because the courts are saying you must do it because the courts are now the appropriators in chief. The courts have the power of the purse. They have the power to execute, to literally demand executive action, not just put a negative on a positive of an executive, but put a positive on a negative. You must fund this. You must give these visas. And then late last night, and I was emailing back and forth with Mark Levin while he was on air, and he, he had an amazing show. We'll link to in show notes just the audio. It's worth hearing him, the passion in his voice. You're not going to hear it from almost any other national radio show host who claims to you know be fighting for us. But late, late last night, a George W. Bush-appointed judge, and this is a pattern, many of the cases this past week have been Republican-appointed judges, none of them yet Trump judges, to be fair, but a lot of them from George H.W. Bush or George W. Bush, said that Trump must continue violating federal immigration law, must issue Obama's DACA amnesty, not just renewals to those who already got it, but new applications as well, which according to the Migration Policy Institute could open the door for over a million more illegal amnesties. You have a federal district judge that now is given the power to create denizens of aliens, something that Alexander Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers that only a king can do. And by the way, the the Library of Congress said that even a king in England couldn't do it once parliament already had power, you know, without the power of parliament, couldn't do something like Obama's executive amnesty. We, we become desensitized because the courts are doing this so quickly. The left controls the entire apparatus of the legal profession, from the law schools to all the plaintiffs to all the third-party organizations with an unlimited number of staff attorneys and an unlimited limited amount of funding from Soros, the Ford Foundation, you name it, to place every common-sense natural law, congressional law, tradition, history, no matter what, in court as a justicable case even though it's not, get an outcome they want and inexorably create a, a jurisprudential velocity towards what they want. And that's what a lot of people are missing when they don't pay attention to this growing trend. Like, yeah, well, it'll be overturned by the Supreme Court. They're missing the point. If they throw a hundred things at us, we become desensitized because it becomes normal already. Oh, another immigration case. It was shocking at first. What do you mean? A president doesn't have the authority? What are you talking about? For 200 years, our, our court said it was the most settled area of law. But now it's, it's the most unsettled area. 
So even if the Supreme Court reigns in, eh, well, I wouldn't go that far yet. Well, they got 50% of what they want, and then they just pick up from where they left. And a lot of these were GOP judges. What we're not understanding is, even if Trump has two terms, and even if he appoints only good judges, for, for argument's sake, let's just say the people around him now are doing a better job than they did in previous Republican administrations scrutinizing the lower court picks. Let's just give them that. If you look circuit by circuit, the type of people who are retiring, which are mainly the good judges, we're not really swinging the balance. We've made the fifth and eighth circuits, which were decent, we've made them much better and good. But they're not going to the fifth and eighth. They're not going to take their immigration, transgender, environmental immigration cases before those circuits. They have the D.C. circuit. They have the ninth. They have the fourth. And as we see this week, they really have the first, second, third, um, sixth, and seventh. Most panels they get. They have most of the circuits, and they're going to have them. Because what we don't understand is we already lost the fight. Even if Trump had an impeccable record of picks, there's already a supermajority on most circuits between GOP and Democrat appointees who believe in the most radical ideas that even the last generation of judicial tyrants didn't believe in. And moreover, the left controls the at-bats at the courts. They control it. You know, this discussion is very apropos taking place today. Wednesday morning was the oral arguments in the Supreme Court for the latest travel ban case, the so-called travel ban. Now, the big news today that a lot of people are focusing on, and not surprisingly, that this will likely be a 5-4 decision in, the favor, uh, in favor of the Trump administration. And was, everyone's like, oh my gosh, we're going to win a case. First of all, do you understand that let's say we put 10 cases in court that should never be in court, that we should never have to fight for months. And, you know, it's been 14 months since Trump could fully implement this. Basic presidential powers. Let's say, you know, okay, one thing is we have the right to rape all Republican women. Another thing is we have the right to confiscate all the property of conservatives. Another thing is that, um, you know, I don't know, guaranteed income. The Bernie Sanders is pushing that now. Guaranteed universal income is mandated by Constitution. You know, another thing is you you have to have seventy days of early voting. Pick ten radical things, and let let's say we lose on nine and we win on one. The winning on one is not a win because that's a defensive victory on something that's so absurd that should never be in the courts. And if you look broadly on the immigration issue, we're losing almost everything. But there's a lot more to say about that. We've already lost 70% of the issue. You can't look at something in a vacuum. you got to look at the before and the after. This is what our people don't understand. Here's what's happening with that. We've already lost the original travel ban. This is on version number three that they're, li- they're not even litigating the first because the lower courts won. Trump gave in to them. So we don't even get to force the Supreme Court to go on record on more of the foundational premise. It's the third version. It's not even a ban. It's more vetting. It adds in a couple more countries to make it look like it's not Muslims. Um, It's like, I forget the percentage. It's a tiny percentage of the number of 
Islamic immigrants we bring in that are endangering our country. And if you look at the tenor of the arguments of what the administration's arguing, what even uh, certainly Kennedy and Roberts will agree to, they're going to write a very narrow opinion on an already watered down of a watered down version. Okay, this much, yes, you, the president, can do. Yeah, you're allowed to follow immigration law this much. You're allowed to follow the Constitution this much. But as you well know, all that's going to do is greenlight the lower courts in every other case to keep going after him. Foundationally, they're cementing that you can, that, that there's no longer plenary power. We went in a matter of a year from the fact that a president and Congress have the full power to exclude anyone for any reason, whether it's invidious or not, whether it's discriminatory or not, whether it's for a good reason or not. That is up to the people. There is no discrimination law when it comes to immigration. That's why the courts for 120 years use such emphatic language. Because it's rooted in the principles, not just of the Constitution, but of the Declaration of Independence and the Social Compact. You know, let me just read to you two cases. The Supreme Court already addressed this. Jutoy v. United States in 1905. Quote, that Congress may exclude aliens of a particular race from the United States, prescribe the terms and conditions upon which certain classes of aliens may come to the country, establish regulations for sending them out of the country, such a, sending out of the country such aliens as come here in violation of law, and commit the enforcement of such provisions, conditions, and regulations exclusively to executive officers without judicial intervention are principles firmly established by the decisions of this court. Precedent already 113 years ago. Let me read to you another case. A year before, 1904, Turner v. Williams. We are at a loss to understand in what way. Cause so, so actually, you know, this is nothing new. The plaintiffs back then were asserting some sort of a First Amendment right to, you know, not be uh, discriminated against in terms of uh, views. This actually wasn't a Chinese exclusion case. Turner v. Williams, I believe, was an anarchist. It was a case of. Um, keeping out anarchists. It was part of the 1891 immigration law. So, quote, we are at a loss to understand in what way the act is obnoxious to this objection. It has no reference to an establishment of religion, nor does it prohibit the free exercise thereof, nor abridge the freedom of speech or of the press, nor the right of the people to assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances. It is, of course, true that if an alien is not permitted to enter this country or having entered contrary to law is expelled, he is, in fact, cut off from worshiping or speaking or publishing or petitioning in the country. But that is merely because of his exclusion thereof. Therefrom, he does not become one of the people to whom these things are secured by our Constitution by an attempt to enter forbidden by law. To appeal to the Constitution is to concede that this is a land governed by that supreme law and is under it the power to exclude has been determined to exist. Those who are excluded cannot assert the rights in general obtaining in a land to which they do not belong as citizens or otherwise. And yet, even in a victory now, we'll see what Thomas writes and hopefully Alito and Gorsuch will be with him. You know, Gorsuch is screwing us on deportations, but I do believe on denial of entry he'll still be good. I will almost guarantee you, as it relates to Roberts and Kennedy, 
they're going to see the ground or certainly wink and nod to lower courts that absolutely the power is not plenary. Absolutely, you cannot discriminate. Absolutely, you can't stop Muslims from coming here or certain countries. Keep in mind, all Trump was doing, you know how modest this is. It's the countries that don't even have data systems. It's a vetting issue. It's not even a cultural issue. Because the biggest Muslim countries aren't even on the list. These are countries that among them pursuant to statute. And I'll link to in show notes. I have one article where I link to in so I don't, you know, link to 50 different things on, on the show notes. There's one article. If you scroll down, I have a list of 10 other articles I wrote on the travel ban and this type of stuff. And basically, there's there's a number of statutes that directly not just um give discretion to Trump to do to do this, but to but actually mandate it. As it relates to countries on the State Department terror watch list, designated ter- state sponsors of terror, the president must cut off visas. It, Obama and, and Bush were using very vague waiver authority to wiggle out of it. But the base of the statute actually says he must do it. From countries like Iran, for example, that are designated. And yet the courts are now saying you can't do it. Just like they're saying you can't follow immigration law and you must give amnesty to those that pursuant to law must be deported. So yeah, on this, the most high-profile case will win a very narrow victory. But as you guys know already, we don't, Even the defensive victories, they're not like the victories of the left, where it's categorical. Because the lower courts can always be more progressive than the Supreme Court. But you just can't be less progressive than Supreme Court precedent. They already unsettled 90% of the plenary power doctrine. It's just, yeah, the president still has a little authority to sometimes do some stuff. I mean, I, I think a lot of our people don't realize how radical this is. And that's part of my point, that the lower courts create this jurisprudential momentum. So what often happens is, out of 10 radical cases that should never even make it or get standing past the first day in district court, they downright win in district court. They win in the appeals court. And it takes forever for the Supreme Court to take it off and often they never take it up, and the radical lower court ruling stands. Because part of the problem is the Supreme Court often won't take up cases if there's no circuit split. You know, divided where you know the Fifth Circuit rules one way and the Eighth Circuit rules another way, or vice versa. So they will only shop it to the places where they think they'll win. So they win in every case, and that in itself gives almost like a political momentum. Wow, you know, all these courts think what the president did was unconstitutional. It it, it sways public opinion. Which, by the way, is the single biggest factor in Supreme Court decisions. Then what that does is it allows the Supreme Court to then entertain things that they would never entertain. Well, you know, maybe the government could uh, cut off your plumbing uh, if they want to promote transgenderism and diversity. But only in these circumstances. Well, you know, I wouldn't take it that far. You got a legitimate order. They start entertaining it. And it only grows from there. You can never turn back. This is the point that our people are missing when they don't pay attention to the lower courts at all. 
You know, by the way, Section 212F, just so you know, that delegates the president the authority to shut off any immigration, it's when he views it in the national interest. It doesn't say national security. That could mean I don't like you because I think you're going to subvert us with your culture. I think you're going to be a public charge. I think you don't take a shower enough. I think you're going to be a health risk. It's for any reason. Even even Roberts and these guys is kind of like, you know, just listening to oral arguments. It's like, yeah, you know, it's enough national security. We don't want to second guess them national security. It's not just national security. You're limiting a power. That's a very, meaning even a victory is going to be a huge loss. And yet, this is one of the better cases where at least after 14 months, we got some relief. I mean, most other cases were losing. And even, you know, the case of Jennings v. v. Rodriguez, which was one of the few recent victories, five to four, um, on detention for asylum seekers, you know, where basically all these guys were let go on bond hearings because of a Ninth Circuit ruling. That ruling stood for four years. We were having the worst drug runners and the worst violent criminal aliens being let go and absconding and endangering our society in an existential way for four years until we got relief from the Supreme Court. So even where the Supreme Court rules with us, these these courts do irrevocable damage. Why should they be accorded that power? Why? Just, just makes it makes no sense, and our people just don't see it. You know, I'm, I'm going to be coming out with a list of. I have a document of 15 ways to fight back against the courts. 15 powers that Congress have, or strategies, or ways they could, you know, solve this issue. Um, maybe we'll limit it to 10 to make it a little bit more consumable. Um, uh, I'm going to try to copy edit it over the next week or so. <clears throat> But one one of the ways I was thinking, and, and I linked to this in uh, – show this in an article is – I mean to today's article is making mandatory appeals. So you know everything else I'm doing is taking away power. But you know it's kind of tough because we have this whole culture in our body politic that the courts are God. So I'm like, all right, make the Supreme Court more powerful automatically mandate that the Supreme Court take the appeal whenever a lower court issues an opinion on a political issue and applies it broadly. Nationwide injunction. Again, one way you could take away their ability to do nationwide injunctions, you could go after standing. There's a lot of different things you can do. There's a lot of tools in that box, and and we're going to discuss that in the coming days. I'm going to write an article on that. But one of the ways you could do it is just having mandatory Supreme Court um uh, you know, uh, granting of cert, and and that's going to solve a lot of the problem because part of what people don't understand the dirty little secret is even the four liberals, and there's really six liberals, but the four like, consistent liberals on the Supreme Court, there's a certain respect for the institution, and they're very political. They're not going to come out and uproot 200 years of settled precedent in one shot. They're too scared to do that. But the lower courts are their forward advancing guard that they allow them to do it, and then they could come in and even look judicious and restrained and kind of somewhat rein them in. But still, you know, let's say, like I say, the lower courts say, okay, everyone has to have two sex change operations per family, and the lower and the Supreme Court is like, no, 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 no that, that's too much. One, one, one sex change operation. So they actually look like they're reining in, but in fact, they're they're starting a radical, you know, precedent. 
And then, you know, the lower courts just build on it from there because they create this momentum. That's what happened in Obergefell. They didn't just one day say a marriage is not a marriage. In fact, Anthony Kennedy, two years prior in the Windsor case, said states have full control. How how did you get to the saying, oh, well, now states don't have control? Because it was the lower courts, one after another, were striking them down. So then it was just a marriage was already dead by the time it got to the Supreme Court. So then they felt there was enough, you know, and it helped lead public opinion too. It helped change public opinion, having the courts do that. But if right away you had, really, the president can't decide this, take it to the Supreme Court right away, they're going to be very reluctant. But what the Supreme Court does is they let it stew. They don't take up the case. We need to force them to go on record. Think about it. The Supreme Court hasn't been forced to go on record yet that illegal aliens have the right to demand an abortion. Well, let it stew in the lower courts. And then they create this momentum, and then they could start entertaining it, maybe side with it completely, side with it in part. But if you right away, after the first radical opinion, boom, Supreme Court, you either have to put a stay on it, or you got to take up the case right away. I'm telling you that you'd have a different result. You know, part of what our people don't understand is, um, you know, as I wrote about today, Israel had this problem before America. Israel's Supreme Court was even worse than America for many years, where literally they would just make law. And it was a problem that Robert Bork talked about, I believe, in coercing virtue. Um, either that or slouching towards Gomorrah. He talked about the craziness of Israel's system and how we're, you know, edging towards there. We're actually worse than Israel now. See, you know, a while back, um, there was this guy who was a Supreme Court justice there named Aaron Barak, and he once said an amazing thing, and you'll you'll love this because it applies to what we're dealing with now. Quote everything is justicable. And it's true. I could put any abstract issue in court and sue it. And they could give standing. Now, part of what people don't understand... So now let me me just finish that thought and then come back to the justicable thing and standing and third parties and all that stuff. So anyway, um, you know what what was the straw that broke the camel's back in Israel? Uh, Caroline Glick has a great article on this at Breitbart. Because uh, you know she lives in Israel and writes a lot about Israeli politics as well as American politics, she said that Israel, the Knesset, is finally dealing with the judicial supremacy. They're they're stripping their power. The straw that broke the camel's back was immigration. They started venturing into immigration, and they're like, "Look, you know, you, you can't have that. You can take my money, but you can't take my wife. You know, we have no, we have nothing left if we're not if we're going to have stolen sovereignty. Yeah, we have this now in America." And our Congress will not act. The conservative legal movement will not say what I'm saying. Think of any of the 15 ideas I'm thinking of. Just appoint better judges. Losers. Also, it's worse than Israel because in Israel, I mean, my understanding at least, is it was only the Supreme Court. Here here we're according any one of the 800 or so district judges the potential authority to be God on any issue under the sun. Which which gets me into my point. Um, and you know, I know I haven't. I have a lot more to elaborate on, 
And we're running out of time because I do want to get to healthcare a little bit today. But there's a number of factors that distinguish judicial review from judicial supremacy or judicial exclusivity. And, and we've done a number of shows on this. We've written a number of articles on this. But one of the things is valid standing. Even if you believe in judicial review, a court doesn't have the right to veto. There's no veto. A court can't veto a law. Right? It's not what a court does. A court exercises the judicial power. So even if you believe in judicial review, all that means is in the context of rendering an opinion in a valid case with an individualized grievance, injury in fact, that's redressable through the courts in a legitimate way, even if a law gets in the way, they could say, look, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to apply the law for this person. I'm going to grant this plaintiff relief. That's the judicial power. To strike down laws is what is the presidential power, at least before it's signed by a previous president. That's a veto. No court, a court doesn't have that power, according to anyone's system. So now you'll, 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 you'll ask the obvious question, well, how does judicial review not automatically transmogrify into judicial supremacy as the courts having the final and last say if you're going to tell me they could you know, take any case and then say, well, the law is invalid? The answer was very simple. The founders never envisioned the ACLU. MALDEF, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, where you have third party, where you, you don't have a guy that's like, oh my gosh, the government, because of a certain statute, is just killing me. It's costing me millions. It's taking away my property. They're throwing me in jail for no due process, with no due process. And I'm not talking about a foreign national, I'm talking about an American citizen. No, we're talking about third party organizations that get straw man plaintiffs with no individualized grievance other than you don't like the politics of what the legislator, what the party in power is doing, and you sue it in court. I don't like your legislative districts. I mean, is that really an individualized grievance? Oh, it violates my due process. No, it doesn't. Stop it. That's not what a court is for. Planned Parenthood, the notion that you could get standing for, I have a right to taxpayer funds. And that's another thing. It's third-party standing mixed with legal positivism. See, the founders, most of them did believe in judicial review. But that was back when it was to protect unalienable rights, which are negative rights, negative action from government. And obviously that would only that wouldn't apply in the context of deportation or denial of entry to foreign nationals. But immigrants or or foreign nationals in the context of civil cases where you know your life, liberty, and property, but not in a legal positivism way, oh, I have a right to funding. Is it, states now have a right to federal grants. You don't no, you don't. You don't like it, change the policy in the state legislature. That's not justicable. But now you have an army of third party groups that have perfected how to get standing, have perfected all the previous generations of bad stuff, and now we're coming like, oh, Trump's going to appoint a bunch of good judges. They don't, re- they don't understand that they already rigged the system for 50 years over. You don't have judges that are willing to overturn that, certainly on a lower court level. They don't feel they have the power to do it. They're not going to do it. The rules of standing and all this stuff 
So they already know how to pick our lock. They control the at-bats. They control the arc of the litigation. That's what our people don't understand. These are one of the many reasons why this meme of appointing better judges for the last 50 years hasn't worked for us. It will never work. You have to wholesale reform the judiciary. It's just so frustrating. But again, like I said this week, the rationale for judicial review is a refutation to judicial supremacy. The whole point of judicial review is very simple. It's that Congress is not the law of the land. The executive branch is not the law of the land. But sure as hell, the judiciary is not the law of the land either. The United States Constitution is the law of the land. Who gets to determine that? All of us. All of us collectively. The 50 states and the three branches. And each one has tools to fight back. Ultimately, the people need to decide that. Madison spoke directly to that. There is no finality in a constitutional republic because that's tyranny, especially when that finality is placed in the least accountable, least redressable branch of government where where they could win 50-year civilization battles overnight with the flick of a wrist without any debate, without any facts, without any regard for history and traditions and their own precedent. And certainly without facing reprisal from elections. That's the problem we face here. So what Marshall meant, and and, and by the way, this is not, Marshall was a loser. Marshall lied. And and Marshall plagiarized in Marbury versus Madison. You know, in other words, I'm going to build, see, you think I'm going to be against judicial review? I'm going to build it up even bigger to knock it down. It predated 1802. It's in the Federalist Papers, Federalist 78 from Hamilton, which he basically plagiarized. And it comes from a lot of the crafters of Article 3 and the constitutional debates at, at, at the Constitutional Convention and writings um, from the great first judicial scholars in the 1790s. And that's basically we're all the guardians. That everyone swears an oath to uphold the Constitution. So, so if I'm a judge and someone comes in front of me with a valid grievance, and, and a valid grievance doesn't mean, oh, I have a right to early voting. Oh, I'm offended by that Ten Commandments. That no, 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 that that's not. It's not just that you're wrong on the merits. That's not a justicable case. That should never be. It's that government is passing a law that is destroying my my property rights. I literally can't earn a living because of what they're doing to my farm. So you come before the court, and the court says, well, okay, what does statute say? Or is the executive branch interpreting the statute properly against you when they're taking action against you? Uh, well, it looks like they are. That, that's what the statute says. Oh, but wait a minute. Is the statute constitutional? And that's where they said that, look, you know, if Congress says does something that is manifestly repugnant to the Constitution, then they have the right in that case to say – I'm going to grant you relief. They don't strike down a law, but in that valid case, not to carte blanche rewrite a law. And by the way, James Erdell, who who very much believed in judicial uh, review, he was a um, an original member of the Supreme Court, appointed by George Washington 
actually, I think he was the youngest appointee at the time. He was one of the most instrumental members in crafting Article 3 at the convention that created the judiciary. And what did he say? He actually said that a law should only be regarded as unconstitutional beyond dispute before it is pronounced such. Beyond dispute. Right? It means you have an ex post facto law. You have um, a bill of attainder. I say anyone named Bob Jones has to pay an extra 10% in taxes. Um, something that is beyond the shadow of a doubt. Oh, like you have to service the homosexual agenda with your private property. Beyond a shadow of a doubt against the Constitution. Oh, like a state law that says you can't carry any weapon under any circumstance. You know, like the few cases where the courts don't apply it, judicial review properly. Oh, you have to purchase health insurance cartel um, uh, insurance, otherwise you're going to get fined. We're going to regulate inactivity. Not just any activity, but even inactivity. Your entitlement to breathe and live. That's what they meant for the courts to get involved. Now, obviously, the other branches, if you want to make that as broad political precedent and apply it across the board, other branches could start you know, fighting back on that, limiting the court's power, which they have the power to do, power of the purse, the power of executing. Keep in mind, what if a court – what if in order to give effect to the court's opinion, it requires positive action from the executive? Well, that's up to the executive. They swore an oath to uphold the Constitution as they see it. But, you know, if, if you look even further, to answer our question again, the difference between judicial review and judicial supremacy. See, the very rationale for judicial review is that I can't ignore the Constitution. So how much more so the stronger branches of government, which are elected, which are accountable to the people, which have the power to legislate, power of the purse, power of execution, must only use their power, must only issue work permits and social security permits and visas pursuant to the law as vested by the Constitution. As Marshall said, it would make our oath to the Constitution a mockery if a judge couldn't look at that. So it would certainly make the oath of the president, of the attorney general, of all the executive officers and the members of Congress and members of the state legislature and governors a mockery to their oath if they have to take action in contravention to the most settled foundational laws of this country. Again, judicial review was not invented by Marbury versus Madison. James Wilson, um, who was one of the greatest of the founders, um, you know, he was obviously very, very instrumental in crafting Article Three, the all the, all the powers of the courts. Um, big, you know, big talker at the Constitutional Convention. Um, he was a signatory of the Declaration of Independence and the and the Constitution. He was elected, obviously, twice to Continental Congress. He was he was he represented um, the state of Pennsylvania, um, and one of the leading legal theorists of his time. And again, along with James Erdell, he was one of the six original justices on the Supreme Court. So, you know, 
he, let's just say he has a pretty strong resume. Pretty authoritative source when it comes to judicial power. So he wrote vol- copious volumes of of work on um, on on law and legal theory. And in one of the vo- I believe it's um lectures on law, it's chapter eleven. In 1791, so this was over a decade before before Marbury, he said, this regulation, quote, now regulation he means judicial review, is far from throwing any disparagement upon the legislative authority of the United States. It does not confer upon the judicial department a power superior in its general nature to that of the legislature, but it confers upon it in particular instances and for particular purposes, the power of declaring and enforcing the superior power of the Constitution, the supreme law of the land. Do you see the way he words it? For particular purposes, the, for particular instances, the power of declaring and enforcing the superior power of the Constitution. Doesn't talk about veto or striking down. That, folks, is the difference between judicial review and judicial supremacy. And again, that was certainly even that was only the Supreme Court, not the lower courts. Not the lower courts. But, you know, I always wondered philosophically, you know, Article 3, Section 2 gives, and evidently most people don't understand this, gives Congress the plenary power over not just the lower courts, but over the jurisdiction. Subject matter, proceedings, rules, regulations, every last thing that the Supreme Court does, except for a couple of esoteric areas of original jurisdiction. The number of justices. Congress tomorrow could say the Supreme Court consists of four people. And by the way, it started out with six, an even number, which tells you it wasn't so much like this legislative vote. They had to have an, an odd number. You're rendering an opinion on a case. You're not creating law. That's why, you know, it, that's why there was no provision in the Constitution for how votes are. Oh, the vote's like this. The vote was this. The plurality, the concurrence, the no, it's rendering an opinion in a case. Congress can do everything to the courts. The only thing Congress cannot do is actually exercise the judicial power and say, in Microsoft v. IBM, Microsoft wins. Okay, that's the one thing they can't do. But they could stack the deck, basically ensuring that outcome. There was actually a recent case on a very technical matter where this came up, and Clarence Thomas spelled it out um, brilliantly. He said, quote, When Congress strips federal courts of jurisdiction, it exercises a valid legislative power no less than when it lays taxes, coins money, declares war, or invokes any other power that the Constitution grants it. And yet they won't use it. But let me make another point here. It doesn't make any sense. How on the one hand could you tell me, that, so what, the courts are supreme, whatever they say is supreme, until you exercise Article 3, Section 2, but once you exercise it, then the courts can't render any more opinions on that case? It sounds kind of weird. But the answer is very simple. The founders never meant any judicial supremacism, even if you don't exercise jurisdiction stripping. Meaning, even if you didn't strip them the, the power, basically they say, all right, um, 
you know, someone, a plaintiff, a BS plaintiff comes before them. They give standing to say, all right, um, the Ten Commandments or this World War One cross memorial in Bladenburg, Maryland, like the Fourth Circuit did, is unconstitutional. Okay, so what? So what? You're now asking, so is are are these fat judges going to get their fat rear ends off their bench and get there with get up there with a hauler and rip down that statute? No. It's some sort of executive authority, whether on a federal or state level, to send out someone to go do it. You're asking me to commit an act against the Constitution. I'm not going to do it. It's it's not it's not 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 listening to the courts. Oh, Daniel, not listening to the courts. It's not even not listening to the courts. Not listening would be the other way. If they put a if you want to execute someone and they give that individual. Uh, relief from capital punishment and you go and actively take a positive action and execute the guy. That would be not listening to a court. This is, it's not, the court doesn't have such power. They could render an opinion in that case, but ultimately they're going to rely on executive authority. And that's what the fact, it's not some sort of loophole. It's not some sort of, you know, bug. It's the feature. That's what Hamilton writes in Federalist 78. That's why the Federalists left at the, Concern of Brutus, Judge Yates, Roger um, Yates from from New York, that you know they were concerned about judicial that judicial review would lead to judicial supremacy because they're like, look, they don't have any power to affect that. That if 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 you want to effectuate that as national policy, you know you're gonna you're gonna have to rely on the other two branches, and they're just gonna fight back. They're just gonna say, screw you, we're not doing this. You know, and then the plaintiffs will sue again, and they'll render an opinion, and it will go around and around. You use your powers to fight back against each other. Ultimately, the people need to decide. You know, if you write a very convincing opinion, the people will, will you know, will put pressure on, on the elected officials and maybe throw them out of office for not following the court's order. If they believe it's BS, they'll, they'll side with them. That's what they meant. By judicial review, not being judicial supremacy. You know, I didn't mean to get so deep into this today. I wanted to more jolt you guys as to what's going on and how no one's talking about it and how we have a movement talking about nonsense and, you know, we have the most civilization breaking issues and everyone's either not talking about it or downright saying, oh, the Supreme Court's saving us. The courts are getting good. Awesome opinion by Neil Gorsuch. But one one more point on this. This is exactly what Abraham Lincoln said in the sixth debate with what's his name with Stephen Douglas. When he obviously said, "Look, you know, I'm not going to go ahead and go against that plaintiff. But if you want to make this a broadly political issue and say, after Dred Scott, that every corner of this country, slavery is the law of the land. There's not a darn thing you can do about it, even in the new territories, will screw off. You know, that, that's what he meant. And our, our people just, just don't understand this. They just don't get it. 
They don't get it at all. And that's that, that that's what he said here. He said, look, I'm not going to go up against Dred Scott personally. But, quote, but we nevertheless do oppose that decision as a political rule, which shall be binding on the voter to vote for nobody who thinks it wrong, which shall be binding on the members of Congress or the president to favor no measure that does not actually concur with the principles of that decision. We do not propose to be bound by it as a political rule in that way. That's what it means. You want to say you Ober, Mr. Obergefell, um we're you know we're going to give you a marriage license to go screw around and you know do your thing with someone? So fine. But if you're going to make a political rule that the constitution mandates gay marriage, no, the constitution belongs to our, all of us. You can't have that. No. So you're asking for executive power in the states and on a federal level. Marriage licenses are not issued by the courts. We're going to go ahead and we're going to interpret the Constitution the way we think. And that's ultimately what Abraham Lincoln said at the end of the debate. He said this straight up. That, trying to find the quote here, was at the end of the sixth debate. He said that, quote, each man was bound to support the Constitution as he understood it. Now, Judge Douglas understands the Constitution according to the Dred Scott decision, and he is bound to support it as he understands it. But I understand it another way, and therefore I am bound to support it in the way which I understand it. It's that simple. It is that simple. We had this debate a long time ago. Unfortunately, Stephen Douglas seemed to have won out. Ironically, I don't even think Stephen Douglas would have said this about a lower court's ruling. A district judge could just say, the president must continue in unconstitutional amnesty? He must take the national treasure that belongs to the people, visas and social security cards, and issue them to people that came here illegally, that pursuant to statute that's been as foundational as since the colonial times, must be deported? Are you kidding me? Are you freaking kidding me? And you're telling me it's a law of the land? And all these pathetic people at the Federalist Society and all these nerdy anarcho-anarchist libertarian groups um, that claim to be conservative are saying we must follow it and just appoint better judges? Go to hell. No. This is our constitution. You can't have it. We're going to fight for it. And you know, I don't have enough time because I'm losing my voice and my time to get to health care. But you you want to talk about the tyranny of courts and healthcare. You know, on this show, we talk about a lot of issues, but most prominently the judiciary, immigration, the intersection of both, and healthcare. Because those are the civilization issues. And you're now finding with Alfie Evans, this case of this toddler 
that they're taking off of life support in Britain because they control healthcare there. And you have a judge, you know, has life and death in his hands like God. You have that here. Don't think for a minute that these decisions will not be placed in the hands of the judge. And they already are. We had this with Terry Schiavo and some other cases. And also, as it relates to healthcare, we already have government control of healthcare. They control it statutorily. I have an article out today how government is putting millions of people in pain by banning painkillers in order to obfuscate and cover for the open borders illicit drug problem that constitutes 100% of the so-called opioid epidemic. We have another article out on that today. We already have that. We already have socialized medicine. It's just venture socialism. It's funneled through these Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, style government entities, utility styles. So these insurance companies and healthcare conglomerates, when you see Medicaid, by the way, Medicaid in Florida awarded new contracts to Centene and Humana, they're giving them monopolies with these government programs. So they use the leverage of Medicare and Medicaid and then private insurance is an extension of that because the same companies run them and they get their market share. They control the coverage. They control the healthcare decisions. You already have this with the hold harmless clauses, often cases where doctors cannot offer self-pay discounts to people that are like, look, you know, so often insurance will not cover a life-saving thing. So people will say, okay, I'll, I'll pay for it myself. There's a clause that doesn't allow the doctor to offer it. And it's all propped up by government. And it's only getting worse with the mergers and acquisitions, all because of Obamacare and Medicaid exacerbating pre-Obamacare momentum where the cartel controls everything. We don't have free markets. We don't have freedom. And it's most evident in healthcare. It's coming to America soon. You know, I was watching Macron, Manuel Macron, the um, piece of garbage French leader, lecture Congress about uh, global warming and, oh, there's no planet B. There's no plan B. There's no other option if we destroy our planet. Well, let me tell you, buddy. There's no plan B to America because you guys are done already. You guys are already having paganism and death panels killing your people. You already have where Jews can't live in your country and are emigrating because of the Muslim immigration and the jihad. The courts control everything there. America was the last beacon of freedom. There is no plan B. There is no planet B to America. Now, a lot of our country is already like Europe and lost, but there's got, at least got to be a segment of it that we fight for. You're not going to take it from us. You will not take it. This is our constitution. It's our way of life. It's our natural law. It's our God-given rights. We need a movement to focus on these issues, if nothing else. I know a lot of you are looking for solutions. I try to give them. But you know, Daniel Horowitz is one man, could do very little. If I have 100 other people doing what I'm doing, believe me, the ideas will be very simple to at least fight for. Maybe a couple of them we could implement. It takes a movement. But we're going to have to get people focused. And I think it's got to start with the speaker's race. Not that we're going to win the speaker's race, but Jim Jordan is committed to a new platform, a new contract with America, taxpayer bill of rights to discuss some of the stuff we discussed today. You got to 
get in the face of every House mem- House candidate who's running for Congress. Are you going to vote for Jim Jordan? Or are you going to vote for McCarthy? Kevin McCarthy. Call your members of Congress and say, you will not be voting for Kevin McCarthy. I will organize a movement, move heaven and earth to defeat you if you do not vote for Jim Jordan. It's not, it's not the end. It's just we, we need just some sort of force multiplying impetus platform to at least discuss some of this stuff and break out of this the false dichotomy, phony news stories, misinformation, disinformation, distractions, political morphine that we're hooked on. So we'll we'll discuss that more. I do want to get to Makron and some of his garbage at another point. Also, I'm going to have more out on healthcare, how government is creating a monopoly for a few healthcare conglomerates and insurers. And by the way, the insurers are becoming the healthcare providers now. They own doctor's practices. They own pharmacies. They own everything now. And it's not the free market dictating. It's government programs and statutory um, payouts tilting the playing field that's doing it. Not only is it going to provide us with crappy healthcare, not only is it going to be so expensive, having $800 billion to $1.2 trillion, about a third of our healthcare spending, siphoned off to these third-party parasites, medical pay, pay billers, the uh, bill payers, the PBMs, insurance cartel, government programs. But you're going to have Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans stories in America too. We're never going to have full British-style healthcare. We're going to have venture socialism that we already have, which in some ways is worse. A couple ways this is a little better. You still, it's not quite the post office, so you still have a little bit of private sector ingenuity. That's why our R&D crushes Europe. But in terms of the delivery and the convoluted nature of it, some ways it's even more convoluted because it's all funneled through a government-created cartel where you have the worst aspects of capitalism and the worst aspects of socialism mixed together. For the rest of my life, I'm committed to fighting for sovereignty, security, civil society, and our system of governance. And that's really embodied in judicial reform, true immigration reform, and healthcare reform. As always... Tweet me your ideas at RM Conservative. Email me at dharwitz at crtv.com. Enjoying, I always really do enjoy your feedback. Until next time, God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 